welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the past, present, and future of behavior modification, from worms and pigeons to prisoners, and then finally, all of us internet users. Stick around at the end of the show for a little background story of how this episode came to be made, which turned out to be like some sort of snake-eating-its-own-tail sort of situation. Clips today come from The Stakes, You Are Not So Smart, Wired Magazine, and Hidden Brain. Larry, how would you, how would you define behavior modification? Well, it sounds you know, like a no-brainer if you think about it. A person is behaving in a particular way, and you would like to modify it. You'd like to change it, behavioral change. And basically, these are done through rewards and punishments. In a sense, this is what McConnell was doing when he was training worms. This little water worm runs back and forth in a nice straight line on the bottom of the trough. You might remember this from our last episode. After he did the simple conditioning, which paired light with a shock, he then would put them in a maze. And the worms would slither along, and they had to go either left or right. And you would basically use rewards and punishments to try to get the animal to behave one way rather than another. This is different than pairing a shock with a light and then watching to see how the animal reacts. The key here is how the behavior changes when you give the animal a punishment or a reward. Now, this was a big field of research in the 1970s. And as we'll hear in our next episode, it continues to shape our lives today. These psychological techniques are being employed at a vast scale in Silicon Valley. But McConnell, he didn't come up with this. Behavior modification refers to the ideas of B.F. Skinner. We are all controlled all the time. That's a fundamental principle of a science of behavior. Parents so some background here. B.F. Skinner was a very famous American psychologist, and he had all of these rats and these, these pigeons, and he would train them to do various things. Let me give you an example He would take a pigeon and he built this box and he put the pigeon in the box and there'd be a little disc on the wall. And if the pigeon pecked the disc, it would get a a little pellet of food, like a little reward. The pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms... Skinner is learning from this that you can make behavior very predictable based on when you hand out a reward. So then one of the things that Skinner starts to do is he gets, like, the pigeons to do more complicated things. The two uh, pigeons are at either end of a small ping-pong table. And he trains pigeons to play (laughs) ping-pong. Okay. (laughs) One pigeon uh, pecks the ball as it comes toward him and knocks it toward the other pigeon. Other pigeon pecks the ball back across the table. So it's not ping-pong like it's in the air. Like the birds basically have a little table and a ping-pong ball and they peck it back and forth. forth. They don't pick up paddles. They don't pick up paddles. I'm glad to hear that. I'd be terrified. Is that what you pictured? I did. (laughs) If it goes past one pigeon, the other pigeon can eat. And if it goes the other way, the other pigeon eats. And so if you break down the act of playing ping-pong into little steps Uh and you reward each step, you can train a pigeon to play ping-pong. Right. It's a real game. The uh, pigeon is reinforced for a cross-court shot if that is what gets the ball past his opponent. And Skinner infers from this that if he can train a pigeon, he can use the same techniques to train people. Really? To do what? Well, 
in his mind, the idea becomes if you want better behavior, don't worry about people's inner lives or their feelings or, you know, all the stuff that you talk about in therapy. Mm-hmm. Just deal with the behavior itself. And you can train people using punishments and rewards to be better versions of themselves. So it's about outcomes. It matters what you do. Right. And B.F. Skinner, he sees enormous potential in this idea. And he thinks it can be scaled up to be kind of a social engineering. Mm. And James McConnell, he becomes a foot soldier for these ideas. And in 1969, he sets up a class to teach behavior modification. And it's a two-part class. One is all on the history and the theory of what behavior modification is. Hundreds of students sign up for it. And then he takes it a step further. And the second one is basically a lab where he sends students out to the community to use behavior modification to try to go and to help people. McConnell sends his undergrad students to hospitals, to prisons, to mental health institutions. Well, I'll put it to you like this. It was the type of class where you wanted to go to class. because it was interesting. Chuck Siegerman was a student who took those classes. Um, so I can tell you one story. In 1976, For his lab work, he was sent to the Veterans Hospital in Ann Arbor. And they had a severely head-injured patient there. And the clinical social worker at the time was tearing out her hair because she couldn't do anything to help this kid. Hmm. What had happened to him? He was in a car accident. It affected his speech. It affected his movement. It affected his behavior because he couldn't express himself. So he would scream out, which is why they got us involved originally. They, they couldn't do anything with him. He was totally dependent. It would take multiple staff just to give this guy a bath. It was not good. So one of the major techniques for behavior modification is modeling, modeling the appropriate behavior. People don't know how to behave. Here's what they did. The nurse would wash Seegerman's arm and give him some applesauce as a reward, and the patient would watch this. And then the nurse would wash the patient's arm and give him some applesauce. And we were able to progress that to the point where we were able to put him in a lift, put him in a tub, bathe him without him screaming. Right. All by using modeling, by using positive reinforcement. And it was a very, very successful intervention directly from the class. This all sounds great, honestly. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful use for this therapy, and it's making the world a better place. Yeah, and I I think it was considered very effective and pretty benign. Uh But at the same time that McConnell is sending his students out to do all of this behavior modification work in institutions, he also writes this really shocking article, one that would create a lot of controversy. Can, Can you explain to me what's in that Criminals Can Be Brainwashed Now article? He's really on this kind of crusade. He says, I believe the day has come when we can combine sensory deprivation with drugs, hypnosis, and astute manipulation of reward and punishment to gain almost absolute control over an individual's behavior. He calls it positive brainwashing. I foresee the day when we could convert the worst criminal into a decent, respectable citizen in a matter of a few months or perhaps even less time than that. This article was published in 1970. And here you have this well-known psychologist, a man who some people thought 
could win the Nobel Prize. And he's describing his solution for criminal behavior. And it's so extreme. He wants to deprive prisoners of sight and sound and retrain them to behave well. The ideas in this article, they get a ton of attention. So in 1974, the political activist Angela Davis oh, wow. shows up at the University of Michigan. She gets up on stage to make a speech. And who does she call out? James McConnell. And she reamed him, you know, for talking about these things. You know, is this what you're going to do to our brothers and sisters who are in prison? Are you going to use all of these punishments? Angela Davis sees what he's written as an attempt to control black radicals and other social and political activists. <laughs> it really created a stir. I mean, McConnell wound up now becoming, you know, the poster child for everything that's wrong with behavior modification. Back then, these techniques for behavior modification became a technology in and of themselves. And what was becoming clear is that they could be used for right or for wrong. And I think that's why people freaked out. There was a sense of alarm. Now, of course, the merger between technology and this behavior modification is what we're seeing in our smartphones. We are all now part of this massive behavioral psychology experiment with the devices that we carry with us everywhere. I think the creepiest part of the book is this, this part where you talk about... Um, when algorithms are trying to sort people by type or by category, and that way they can predict what uh, ads that will work on them in the future on their personal timeline, because people who are of this type tend to do this next thing in their life. Um, you talked about the probability that somebody would go on a diet might be somewhere in like the eighty percent range, and but if you target ads toward them, you might push them, you know, into the ninety percent range and and there's this it sloughs off that 20% of unpredictability and humanity uh people who buck norms or people who do unpredictable things and um this whole idea of the algorithm by way of prediction altering the thing that it predicts um that really creeps me out man yeah it's a little upsetting because i mean i i was i came up with that as i was trying to explain to people why algorithms are a problem. In other words, if they're just getting you the kind of toothpaste that you really want or that you wanted all along, then what's the problem there? You know, and oh, and I wanted gel toothpaste and I didn't even know it because it knows the kind of person I am. But what what doesn't work about it is the fact that it's not completely accurate. The fact that these algorithms at best are 80% accurate as to what we're going to do, whether that we're going to, uh, you know, find out that we're gay, get divorced, go on a diet, go to college, you know, whatever, whatever choice it might be, when they start using the probability of our future choice um, to begin changing our newsfeed, what they're doing is not just advertising a particular product to us. They're not just trying to get us to go on Jenny Craig diet instead of Weight Watchers or to go to Harvard instead of Yale. They're trying to make sure that we behave true 
to the algorithmically derived statistical profile. Because if they can get the 80% accuracy up to 90%, if they can get another 10% of us to do what they think we're supposed to do, then they've removed all that anomalous behavior. They've removed all that unpredictable stuff, all those new and novel solutions. And that's a dangerous thing. We don't want to iron out human ingenuity and human innovation and weirdness because it's the weird who are going to save us. You know, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the weird who are going to take humanity into, uh, into new and strange directions. So we don't want to be muting the, the human unpredictability at a time when we most need it. Well, this is the this is really comes to the core of what the book talks about. Is this um, you know being the weirdness of humanity and the ambiguity both in how we behave and how we uh, interpret um, our reality and how we affect reality and how we affect change and how we are connected to one another. Uh, you your sort of central thesis speaks of something a lot, of, which is the idea that we create these tech, these technologies and then we create. The, they, them, these marketplaces uh, and technology could be from language all the way up to the internet and, and then institutions. And then those things that were built to connect us start to disconnect us because they contain what you call an anti-human agenda. So what, what do you, what is this for people who are, we're trying to get into this idea? What is the anti-human agenda to you? I mean, well, it depends. I mean, so, so you're right. I mean, I think I used to, and certainly when I was a kid, I used to think that, you know, we solve our problems by coming up with some new thing, you know, whether it's radio or print or television or the telegraph or the internet. And then this new thing will unleash the real human potential and let us fight the bad stuff and the institutions and the mindsets that are keeping us all down. But um, what I didn't realize was that Uh, None of these new inventions or things are intrinsically um, good, that they're not, you know, they're not necessarily pro-social unless they're used in pro-social ways. So we developed text, you know, the, the ability to write. And the first thing we did with it was keep track of slaves. You know, and and ownership. So it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, we get radio and we have it as sort of a ham radio thing for maybe ten or twenty years, and then it becomes uh, the way that that Hitler took control of his of his nation. You know, or television, which we thought was going to be for education, ends up creating consumer society, or the internet, which was supposed to be about breaking through and making connections with other other humans and networking, has become. A, uh, a system of surveillance and social control. So how does that happen? Well, it depends how far back you want to trace it. You know, for, for me today, it feels like, um, you know, unbridled corporate capitalism is, is the problem mm-hmm. that when you have, and this is sort of what my last book, Throwing Rocks, the Google bus was about that. You can have a great, smart bottom up technology like Google developed out of a dorm room at Stanford. But once they've taken, you know, a few tens of millions of dollars from investors who want to make a few billions of dollars off that investment, you know, if they want a hundred X or a thousand X return on their investment, you're going to have to create an, a really evil extractive platform <laughs> that you're not looking to make a sustainable business. You know, if you just want to make one billion, you know, then maybe you'll be okay. But if you need to make a hundred billion, you're going to have to do some nastiness. It's just, 
it's just how it goes. It was the 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 Twitter problem, you know. And I always talk about when I saw Evan Williams, who is a friend of mine, when I saw him on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with that number, you know, four point six billion under his face, which was what he made the morning of the Twitter IPO. All I could think was, this guy is screwed. You know, <laughs> how is he going to make back that money for these people off a 140-character messaging app? You know, they would have been fine as a multimillion-dollar company and and so successful and so wonderful, but they can't help but be screwy when they've got to try to uh, uh, you know sustain that valuation. It's 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 kind of impossible. So I look at, at growth-based capitalism, the, the idea that we've got to make money, more money no matter what, as part of the problem. So it means, okay, if we want to make all this money, we've got to source our rare earth minerals for our smartphones and our computers by you know using slaves in Africa. Or we're going to have to dispose of stuff in giant land heaps in Brazil and China, or we're going to have to make sure our companies don't have any human workers, that the only way to scale up is to have algorithms do everything. And you end up with these companies that their sole purpose is to extract value from marketplaces, from people and places, and deliver them up uh, to to shareholders. And that's, that's how we get uh, this sort of devastation that we're, that we're experiencing today. Well, let's get started with one of the things that I think is one of the most interesting continuities between both of your work. You write about different things, you talk about different things, but there are a lot of similarities. And one of the key themes is the notion that our minds don't work the way that we sometimes think they do. We don't have as much agency over our minds as perhaps we believe it, or until we believed until now. So, Tristan, why don't you start talking about that, and then you've all jump in. And we'll go from here. Yeah, well, I, I actually <clears throat> learned a lot of this from one of Yuval's early talks um, where he talks about democracy as the, um, where should we put authority in a society? And we should put it in the opinions and feelings of people. But um, my whole background, I actually spent the last 10 years studying persuasion, um, starting when I was a magician as a kid, uh, where you learn that there's things that work on all human minds. It doesn't matter whether they have a PhD or whether they, uh, you know, what education level they have, whether they're nuclear physicists, what age they are. It's not like, oh, if you speak Japanese, I can't do this trick on you. It's not going to work. Or you have a PhD. It works on everybody. So somehow there's this discipline, which is about universal exploits on all human minds. And then I was at a lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab that teaches at Stanford that teaches engineering students how do you apply the principles of persuasion to technology? Could technology be hacking human feelings, attitudes, beliefs, behaviors to keep people engaged with products? And I think that's the thing that we both share is that the human mind is not the total, you know, secure enclave root of authority that we think it is. And if we want to treat it that way, we're going to have to understand what needs to be protected first is my perspective. Yeah, I think that uh, we are now facing really not just a technological crisis, but a, a philosophical crisis, because we have built our society, certain li liberal democracy with elections and the free market and so forth, on philosophical ideas from the 18th century, which are simply incompatible, not just with the scientific findings of the 21st century, but above all with the technology we now have at our disposal. Our society is built on the ideas that the voter knows best, 
that the customer is always right, that ultimate authority, as, as Tristan said, is uh, with the feelings of human beings. And this assumes that the human feelings and human choices are these sacred arena which cannot be hacked, which cannot be manipulated. Ultimately, my choices, my desires reflect my free will and nobody can access that or touch that. And this was never true, but we didn't pay a very high cost for believing in this myth in the 19th or 20th century because nobody had the technology to actually do it. Now, people, some people, corporations, uh, governments, there are gaining the technology to hack human beings. Maybe the most important fact about living in the 21st century is that we are now hackable animals. Well, explain what it means to hack human being and why what can be done now is different from what could be done 100 years ago with religion or with a book or mm-hmm. with anything else that influences what we see and changes the way we think about the world. Uh, To hack a human being is to understand what's happening inside you on the level of the body, of the brain, of the mind, so that you can predict what people will do. You can understand how they feel. And you can, of course, once you understand and predict, you can usually also manipulate and control and, and even replace. And, of course, it can't be done perfectly. And it was possible to do it to some extent also a century ago. But um, the, the difference in, in the level is, is, is significant. The key, I would say that the, the, real, the real key is whether somebody can understand you better than you understand yourself. The algorithms that are trying to hack us, they will never be perfect. There is no such thing as understanding perfectly everything or predicting everything. You don't need perfect. You just need to be better than the average human being. And are we there now, or are you worried that we're about to get there? I think Tristan may be able to answer where we are right now better than me, but I guess that if we are not there now, we are approaching very, very fast. Yeah, I think a good example of this is YouTube. So, um, relatable example, you open up that YouTube video, your friend sends you after your lunch break, you come back to your computer and you think, okay, I know those other times I end up watching two or three videos and I end up getting sucked into it, but this time it's going to be really different. I'm just going to watch this one video. And then somehow that's not what happens. You wake up from a trance three hours later and you say, what the hell just happened? And it's because you didn't realize you had a supercomputer pointed at your brain. So when you open up that video, you're activating Google alphabets, billions of dollars of computing power. And they've looked at what has ever gotten 2 billion human animals to click on another next video. And it knows way more about what's gonna be the perfect chess move to play against your mind. Like if you think of your mind as a chessboard and you think you know the perfect move to play, I'll just watch this one video. But you can only see so many moves ahead on the chessboard. But the computer sees your mind and it says, no, 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 I've played a billion simulations of this chess game before on these other human animals watching YouTube. And it's gonna win. It's like, think about when Gary Kasparov loses against Deep Blue. You know, Gary Kasparov can see so many moves ahead on the chessboard, Mm -hmm. but he can't see beyond a certain point. Like a mouse can see so many moves ahead in a maze, but a human can see way more moves ahead, and then Gary can see even more moves ahead. But when Gary loses against Deep Blue, IBM Deep Blue, that's checkmate against humanity for all time because he was the best human chess player. So it's not that we're completely losing human agency and you walk into YouTube and it always 
addicts you for the rest of your life and you never leave the screen. But everywhere you turn on the internet, there's basically a supercomputer pointed at your brain playing chess against your mind and it's going to win a Let's lot more often Let's talk about the metaphor because chess is a game with a winner and a loser. And so yep. you set up the technology fully as an opponent. But YouTube is also going to, I hope, please, gods of YouTube, recommend this particular <laughs> video to people, right. which I hope will be elucidating and illuminating. So is chess really the right metaphor, a game with a winner and a loser? Well, the question is, yeah, what, what is the game that's being played? So if the game was being played was, hey, Nick, go meditate in a room for two hours and then come back to me and tell me, what do you really want right now in your mm-hmm. life? And if YouTube is using two billion you know, human animals to calculate based on everybody who's ever wanted how to learn how to play ukulele, it can say, here's the perfect video I have to teach you how to play ukulele. That could be great. The problem is it doesn't actually care about what you want. It just cares about what will keep you next on the screen. And we've actually found, we have an ex-YouTube engineer who works with us who's shown that there's a systemic bias in YouTube. So if you airdrop a human animal and they land on, let's say, a teenage teenage girl and she wants to, watches a dieting video, the thing that works best at keeping that, that girl who's watching a dieting video on YouTube the longest is to say, here's an anorexia video. Because that's between, you know, here's more calm stuff and true stuff and here's the more insane, divisive, outrageous, conspiracy, intense stuff. YouTube always, if they want to keep your time, they want to steer you down that road. And so if you airdrop a person on a 9-11 video about just the 9-11 news event, just a fact-based news video, the auto-playing video is the Alex Jones InfoWars video. So what happens to this conversation? What follows us? Ray Kurzweil? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess it's going to really depend. Um, And, you know, the problem is that you can also kind of hack these things. And so there's governments who actually can manipulate the way the recommendation system works by... Uh, throwing thousands of headless browsers, like, you know, versions of Firefox to watch one video and then get it to search for another video so that we search for Yuval Harari, we watch that one video, and then we get thousands of computers to simulate people going from Yuval Harari to watching The Power of Putin or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then that'll be the top recommended video. And so as Yuval says, like, these systems are kind of out of control and algorithms are kind of running where 2 billion people spend their time. So 70% of what people watch on YouTube is driven by recommendations from the algorithm. People think that what you're watching on YouTube is a choice. People are sitting there, they sit there, they think, and then they choose. But that's not true. 70% of what people are watching is the recommended uh, videos on the right-hand side, which means 70% of where 1.9 billion users, that's more than the number of followers of Islam, about the number of followers of Christianity, of what they're looking at on YouTube for 60 minutes a day. It's the average time people spend on YouTube. So you've got 60 minutes, and 70% is populated by a computer. So now the machine is out of control. Because if you thought you know, 9-11 conspiracy theories were bad in English, try what are 9-11 conspiracies in Burmese and Sri Lanka and in Arabic. No one's looking at that. And so it's kind of a digital Frankenstein and so, that's pulling on all these levers and steering people in all these different directions. And Yuval, we got into this point by you saying that this scares you for democracy. Mm-hmm. And it makes you worry whether democracy can survive? Or I believe you say the phrase you use in your book is democracy will become a puppet show. Yeah, I mean, if it doesn't adapt to these uh, new realities, it will become just an emotional puppet show. If you go on with this this, uh, illusion that human choice cannot be hacked, cannot be manipulated, and we can just put trust it completely, and this is the source of all authority, then very soon you end up with an emotional puppet show. 
And um, this is one of the greatest dangers that we are facing. And, and it really is, uh, is the result of kind of philosophical impoverishment, yeah. of just taking for granted philosophical ideas from the 18th century uh, and not updating them with the uh, findings of science. And it's very difficult because you go to people, people don't want to hear this message that they are hackable animals, that their choices, their desires, their understanding of who am I, what is my most authentic uh, aspirations, this can actually be hacked and manipulated. Uh, to put it like briefly, my amygdala may be working for Putin. I don't want to know this. I don't want to believe that. No, I'm, I'm a free agent. If, if I'm afraid of something, this is because, uh, because of me, not because somebody implanted this fear in my mind. If I choose something, this is my free will. And who are you to tell me any, anything else? This election season, go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. On C-SPAN, you'll find in-depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to Election Day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, rallies, and more live as they happen on C-SPAN. Then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at c-span.org. All brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. I don't know if this was intentional or it's just, you know, it's just serendipity, but I was like, as I was reading the book, I was like, this feels like a little bit like those psychedelic, uh, arguments, the, the tune, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out. And then of course, and then you like get to Leary in some point. Um, and, and a lot of that was pushing against some of these ideas that you, you're talking about. And, uh, that was one way of doing it. Um, yeah. Of like saying, well, I'm just going to just disconnect and and uh, go on a psychedelic journey. Um, but then, you know, the internet is a psychedelic journey. And um, you, I could tell. It is. I mean, the internet is a psych. I mean, and that was what Leary used to talk about. He said that the, that the internet was, was the new acid, you know, that it was going to be the new, the new LSD. And it is, it's just as powerful as LSD on a certain level. But, um, when you take LSD, and this was again Timothy Leary said, the thing that the 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 way to make sure that you have a good trip is to to be conscious of your set and your setting. That means your mindset that you have going into it. In other words, if you if you've got a mindset of panic or evil or fear, um, then you're going to extend that. You're going to magnify or amplify that. And then you're setting, where are you taking the drug? You know, so if you're taking, you know, LSD in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, uh, you know, in a war zone or a refugee camp, or, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna magnify, uh, some, some horrific, uh, uh, her horrific phenomenon in your, in your perception. So mm -hmm. you got to kind of have to think about both. And, 
America now is essentially we're living in a psychedelic substrate. Mm -hmm. We're living on these platforms and we have the mindset of um, extraction and uh, and and individuality and we have you know the setting of of you know this sort of uh, 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 American economic uh, you know collapse and powerlessness. These are two weird. Uh, well, they're they're not optimal. They're not the optimal set and setting to promote you know whatever the great Gaian collective mind mm -hmm. and uh, new compassion between people. You know, it could be adjusted. Could you imagine if before you went online, if everybody took a moment to say, I'm now going to move into a very heightened, magnified state of consciousness where I'm potentially connected to all things at once. So let me, let me bring the most sacred mindset and intention to this next session. Mm. But we don't. And now – we don't even go online anymore as a thing. We live online. We live connected. So it's not even something that you can do consciously. You're just in there swimming around. And then meanwhile, we've populated this place. We've populated our tripping zone. We've populated our acid trip with, with demons, really, with little demons, with algorithms that are designed to use everything they know about our, our psychology to mine for exploits and then modify our behavior on behalf of giant, headless institutions that only mean to extract our value from us. What is that? That's a bad trip. Well, it's wild because I, in that era of the the psychonauts, and they were all very much really into the idea of the cyberpunk ethos, and they welcomed the internet, as you uh, were detailing. You know, they they were looking at it as like this is the way to get away from the information gatekeepers. This is a way. Uh, Leary said it's power to the pupil. Now you put what you want in your head, and it was a way to become um, the idea that the that the that. I think it would be so horrific to imagine that this psychedelic space that you've worked so hard to uh, create could then be turned back into a profit model and and colonized by these forces would be the idea that you could like colonize the the actual asset trip itself is uh, is a really terrifying and weird uh, nightmarish type of concept for the right. people. And, and, and they yet did, but that goes back to the first thing we were talking about was, you know, we watched as the acid generation was co-opted by, you know, uh, self-actualization and personal improvement and self-help and the whole West coast new age market. Um, and that was the original to us. Anyway, that was the sellout. It was like, Oh my God. They've, they're worse than their parents. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And so, so we didn't take that into account when building this thing out. So, Kai. Amanda. I'm going to tell you a little story. Okay. Last September, uh -huh. I was riding the subway 
I was heading uptown, mm-hmm. and I was sitting across from this older couple, mm-hmm. and they were holding a smartphone between them, and they were listening really intently Thank you, to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I am here because I believe it is my and you took a photo of this. I remember this photo, right? Like, it was an intense image of these people just, like, on the edge of their seats. Yeah. He's got, like, this beautiful white mustache, and she's clutching his arm. Both have these, like, expressions on their face where you can just tell they're really thinking about what they're hearing. I'm an independent person, and I am no one's pawn. So I took the photo, and I added this caption that said, couple listening to the Kavanaugh hearings on the Uptown One train. And then I tweeted it. And then I got off the train, and I was outside, and I checked my phone again. And the tweet was, like, blowing up. What do you mean? It was likes were coming in. <laughs> like a viral tweet. It went viral. I've never been viral. I mean, your phone goes insane. What's that like? What would you feel like? It was like being at a slot machine, pulling the handle, and winning, you know, $10,000. Just jackpot. Just social media jackpot. Jackpot, right. Because you not only are you getting likes and retweets and likes and retweets and comments, but also, like, people who know you start to see it. So you start getting texts. You start getting calls. Wow. I was contacted by every major news organization really? in the country. Yep. There was a Time Magazine article about this tweet. Wow. Going viral. So it was super exciting. And as you might imagine, like, over the next few days, I kept checking and checking and checking my phone. It was extremely distracting. I thankfully did not have that much work because this became my job was like... Just try, going to see in your likes on Twitter. Yeah, just like checking how my viral tweet was doing. Wow. And then there was this point at which it stopped. Oh, uh, the world moved on. It stopped getting likes and it stopped getting retweets. And that was pretty sad. Yeah. Like the moment had passed. And I go back to Twitter, I tweet, but I, what I realized is that I am constantly chasing the fix. So even if I just get, you know, whatever, 30, 40 likes, something small, I still can't concentrate because I'm looking at it so much. And I realized, like, this is the perfect example of B.F. Skinner's ideas. The pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. So if you're a pigeon or a rat in one of B.F. Skinner's experiments, he would give you a little food pellet every time you press the lever, right? Mm -hmm. Press the lever, get food. Press the lever, get food. Press the lever, get food. Now, the rat quickly figures this out. So they press the lever, and they get food, and then they just eat until they're full, and then they stop pressing the lever. They basically figure it out. So one of the things that he discovers is that if he makes the reward unpredictable— What do you mean, unpredictable? Well— You know, I spoke with an expert on B.F. Skinner. Her name is Alexandra Rutherford, and she wrote a book about him. And she broke it down. She says, you know, if you give the food to a rat on a schedule that varies. It can be after one lever press, and then after three, and then after five, and then after two, and then after one. And when it's delivered that way, the rat will continue pressing that bar forever. And that is at the heart of all gambling devices and has the same effect. Pigeon can become a pathological gambler just as a person can. This is what keeps me going back to Twitter all the time. It's like I never know what I'm going to get. And the bigger lesson that B.F. Skinner took from this was that it's not just how often you give out the rewards, but it's like whoever builds the box and doles out the rewards, they control the animal. This was, for Skinner, the kind of revelation, the extent to which these variables in the environment could be controlled to produce precisely the kind of behavior that you wanted. 
And this, I think, is like the parallel to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They have built the box that we are all existing in. And they've got us coming back for these rewards time and time again. And they are managing our behavior now. Okay, so we're all inside Silicon Valley's box now, chasing these rewards. But how did we get in the box, right? I mean, did they do this on purpose? I think it's really complicated. And I've been trying to figure this out. And so one of the first things I did was call up this guy. His name is Ian Leslie. I am a journalist and author. And I write about, I suppose I write about human behavior. And he wrote an article titled, The Scientists Who Make Apps Addictive. And Leslie says he sees a straight line from B.F. Skinner's behaviorist ideas to what's happening today in Silicon Valley. They're really just reviving that whole behaviorist strand of, of psychology, but making it commercially applicable. And he found that one of the most well-known people in this field is a behavioral scientist named B.J. Fogg. What a great name, number one. <laughs> I just like the name B.J. Fogg. And two, you know, he's come up with his science of persuasive technology. And, you know, the world runs on persuasive technology. So I, I think going in, I had a tendency to think of him as perhaps a potentially somewhat sinister Figure. And Lightworks all about behavior and how you design to change people's behaviors. BJ Fogg directs the Persuasive Tech Lab at Stanford. Stanford University is known to be where the world's best and brightest students come to learn. And on this, this is one of his former students. His name is Tristan Harris. BJ Fogg, the professor, teaches a different class every year. He actually chooses a different topic of persuasive technology. Harris says that B.J. Fogg taught them everything from how casinos are designed to keep you gambling to how you get a dog to roll over and beg using clicker training. So, you know, how do you do click-click, give them the reward only when they do the behavior you want, and when they don't do the behavior you want, you don't do the click. Um, you have all these Stanford computer science engineers in the class and you're, you know, are watching videos about a dog trainer. You're like, why am I, why am I doing this? B.J. Fogg was teaching the science of persuasion and how it like overlapped with technology. So in 2007, BJ Fogg decides he's going to focus this persuasive tech class on this relatively new platform called Facebook. <laughs> this class, which is completely packed, is all about Facebook. Picture like this very bland classroom. The students have these really old laptops. They're sitting shoulder to shoulder. It's totally packed. And this class has become legendary. There has been no persuasive technology more successful than Facebook ever in terms of persuading, changing attitudes and behaviors. Now at this point, Facebook platform has just opened up. So instead of being apps that are made by Facebook, mm -hmm. anybody can make an app and upload it to Facebook. Right. So BJ Fogg organizes his class. He breaks his students up into little teams and he has each team design an app. You have a way to take interpersonal persuasion dynamics and scale that up to millions of users. Eventually, I think billions of users. And one team designs this send hotness app. Hot, as in like sexy hotness? Yeah. The idea was that you could send your friend on Facebook like points for being hot. <laughs> and I think it would rank your friends by hotness points. Okay. And this app does extremely well. 
zero users, 10,000 users. I know, yeah, <laughs> 80,000 users. Next thing they know, they have 5 million users wow. of this app that they're developing in a class. Wow. They put in a little ad and they make a million dollars. We're wrapping up the end of the Stanford class presentations tonight to a group of over 500 people. Hundreds of people show up for their end of semester presentations for like this class at Stanford. Because people are making a million dollars. Well, that's it. So this is a big deal. How you doing, BJ? What you did was really put together an amazing class. That just had- people see the financial potential and investors show up for the last class too. Think about the value creation of, of what was created. Amazing. I, I mean, for me as a psychologist, Over the years, B.J. Fogg's students have gone to many different companies. He taught the co-founder of Instagram. He taught people who went on to work at Facebook and Uber and Google. And he becomes known as the millionaire maker. It's interesting, B.J. Fogg, the millionaire maker, but I've never heard of him. No, I'm not surprised. It's not like a he's not a household name. But his influence in these tech circles has been huge. Mm. So not only does he teach at Stanford and he wrote a famous textbook, but he also has been a paid consultant for eBay and Nike and Procter & Gamble. He's basically considered a tech guru. But then in 2016, that basically marks the start of the backlash against Silicon Valley. But because of the election, because of Cambridge Analytica and Russian interference and all of that. Right. So at this point, the media goes looking for a villain, someone to blame for all of these psychological techniques that are being used in our devices and whose name pops up but B.J. Fogg. And he gets cast as this potentially sinister puppet master who is harnessing the dark arts of persuasion for profit. So I gave him a call. Hello, Professor Fogg. Hi, Amanda. Hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's kind of still early. So it took a few months. B.J. Fogg is a busy guy. But I finally reached him at his home in California. And I started with, you know, easy questions first. Like, what's he best known for? I was the first to say, hey, there's going to be this overlap between persuasion and computers. And put those two circles over each other and say, this overlapping space, this is going to happen. And this is going to be a big deal. And there's good things and there's bad things. He also named the study of this overlapping space something pretty terrifying. He calls it captology. Not because of the word capture, it's an unfortunate uh, similarity, but uh, for the acronym, Computers as Persuasive Technology. And then we talked about the Facebook class. BJ Fogg has consistently predicted where tech was going, and he really saw the potential for Facebook back in 2007. But it's not like he taught them an arsenal of evil psychological techniques. He says the students were just like at the right place at the right time. And as I mentioned before, he comes up with a new class every year. So take this year's class. This one is inspired by his parents. I live part-time in Maui, and I'm there finishing up my book. And in the mornings, I go surfing. So I surfed, and I come in, and my parents were visiting us. So they were there. My parents are in their 80s. And so I walk in after surfing, and then we're going to have breakfast, and I'm going to work all day. Right. So I walk in, and I say, hi. And my mom is sitting there on her laptop. My dad's looking at his mobile phone. And neither one, they both said hi, but neither one looked up at me. And I was like, oh my gosh. BJ Fogg's own parents couldn't put their phones down long enough to say hello to their son. 
So this year I decided to have a class on behavior design for reducing screen time. Reducing screen time? Are you kidding me? This is not what I expected from this guy. I'm curious how you see your your own role in, in being someone who sort of taught how to keep people on their devices, who is now teaching people how to get off them. Like, what? how have you seen your role in all this? Yeah, but Amanda, that's not fair. I haven't taught people how to keep people on devices. He thinks he's been treated unfairly by the media. To me, what feels unfair, it's when people say, BJ Fogg had this list of manipulative techniques and he trained all these people who then went into companies and now they're addicting their child thanks to BJ Fogg's secret list of dark techniques. Right. And that's hurtful. You know, so here you are, the one that's saying, hey, here's going to be the problem. And you spend a lot of time trying to foresee what the problems are and get people to take action. Just like somebody studying climate change saying, hey, this is going to be a problem. And then you blame the climate change researcher for creating climate change. That's kind of how it feels on my side. So what should we do about all this? And we can start with find the others. But what is your suggestion for um, mindfully uh, altering the course of what we're doing with this technology? Well, uh, I'm real fractal about this. I really believe that small actions make a difference and trickle up. It's really hard to do super small things. And as you do them, you kind of force the issue with the rest of your with the rest of your reality and way of living. But I mean, yeah, the call of the book, the main one is find the others. And it starts by finding the others who are like you, but then it means understanding what the other really means is the others. Find the others, find the humanity in other people. And right now, the online universe is really good at helping us see other people as adversaries. And what I would like the internet to be more tuned toward is helping us see our supposed adversaries as other people, you know, and then how, how, how do you do that? Um, it's, that's not rocket science. That's just as easy, just, just as easy as, 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 uh, as, as what we're doing now. Um, so that's my main call is find the others. Look at, you know, if you're, if you're, a, a Bernie person, learn to see the humanity and the fear underlying the, the Trump person's position. <coughs> they're not insane. They're, they're, they're acting intensely human in a very difficult situation. So see them as humans rather than focusing on these, you know, bizarre ideologies that, that we all believe. Um, meet your neighbors. <laughs> you know, it sounds crazy, but that's Americans crazy don't know talk. who they, it's crazy. I know they don't know who their neighbors are. You know, meet them, um, celebrate your weirdness, your difference. Um, some of it's super simple. Get an ad blocker on your, you know, and uh, spend less time online, spend more time, um, touching people, looking in their eye, make eye contact, establish rapport, get into small groups with other people. You know, that's the real meaning of the word conspiracy is to breathe together. That's Mm. today. That's a conspiracy. Be in a room with other people engaged with one another and you are 
I mean, as, as capitalism's concerned, you were part of the problem. You're not consuming anything. You're not producing anything. You're just enjoying other people. Wait a minute. Stop. You know, <laughs> they're, those people's time is value to our platform. Stop talking to them, enjoying them, having sex with them, and let them get back on one of our platforms. Um, I think we can reform education. You know, right now we're lo still looking at education as an extension of the market. And we want to put in as much technology in the classroom as we can to help prepare our kids for these jobs of the 21st century. And we have to remember that's not what education was for. Education was compensation for a life spent working. It was about learning how to read and write and think so that you would have dignity, even though you had to work down in the coal mines. So what does that look like? What does it mean to spend as little time on machines as possible and as much time modeling uh, modeling a, a life of learning for, for young people? And I guess, you know, most importantly, before we, you know, program humanity out of civilization, we should look back on what values did we leave behind when we had the Industrial Revolution? What values did we leave behind that we want to retrieve and embed in the digital landscape of the future before it's settled? You know, what values do we want in there and how do we how do we program for that rather than just programming for extraction? It's so good. I and I and I, I really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed feeling challenged at certain points and then go and then finally uh, getting bowled over by your arguments. And huh. um and also I was like, Oh my god, look at this, optimism. Um, <laughs> which felt really nice. Um Yeah, I tried to make it as hopeful a book. I mean, today arguing that humanity has a chance of avoiding extinction is an optimistic argument. <laughs> That's right. That's totally true. It's totally true. But it's, it's good because we've gone through these other stages. We've had the, the, the era where we were scared we were going to die of nuclear holocaust. We've had the, 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 you know, pie in the sky stuff back and forth. We've had all these, we, we get to layer all this stuff on top of each other. And now we were like, okay. And like, I like the idea of taking a deep breath and saying, what, is worth retrieving from before that we may have blown past in this desire to bust everything apart. Um, right. And I really dig that view toward in the book. It's really nice. When you step back and look at this long arc of um, how attention merchants have captured our attention and monetized it and sold it and found ways to figure out what works and what doesn't work, are there broad patterns that emerge about human nature and human psychology? Are, are there lessons to be drawn about how the mind works from the story of the attention merchants? Yeah, I think there, there are. Um, so uh, first of all, there, there's lessons as to how we decide what to pay attention to. Uh, it's a mixture of voluntary and involuntary mechanisms, uh, the science suggests, and I think the history suggests it's true. So we like to think we control what we pay attention to, but in fact, we can sort of be conditioned or involuntarily attracted to things. If you ever found yourself, you know, clicking on Facebook and wondering, why did I do that? Or if you ever find yourself, you know, startled by an ad and watching it, not sure what got you there, you'll know that it's not fully within our voluntary control. There's an even deeper message in the history of the attention merchants. Part of this book is motivated by deep interest in human freedom. And, uh, you know, a sense that we can lose our freedom and become entrapped uh, really 
by doing what we think are voluntary choices. I mean, I don't have to read email. I don't have to be uh, writing tweets or something. Uh, uh, nonetheless, these voluntary choices in a certain environment can leave one, one trapped. Uh, another motivation for this book is the experience, which I'm sure many of the listeners will have had, where you you know, go to your computer and you have the idea you're going to write just one email and you sit down and suddenly an hour goes by, maybe two hours, and you don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, the, the sort of surrender uh, of control over our lives, the, the loss of control, uh, to me, speaks deeply to this challenge of freedom and what it means to be autonomous in our time and chose, have a life where you've sort of, to some degree, chosen what you want to do. Th- these are values that seem to me under threat in our times. So there's been a war for our attention for a very long time, at least a century, probably much longer than that. Are we just helpless victims in this war where, you know, people are waging, you know, this battle for our attention? Is is there a way that we can in some ways take back this battlefield and own our own minds again? Yeah, this is, as you said, uh, something only a century old. You know, advertising 100 years ago was just getting started. So we're in a relatively new, uh, over the course of human civilization, uh, uh, environment. And I think we can adapt. We still have our individuality. And ultimately, some choice. Now, the challenge is that we face an industry which has spent a century inventing and developing techniques to get us hooked, to harvest as much attention as possible, and they're good at it. Uh, but we do have uh, choices. And I think it begins with, with uh, the idea that attention is a resource, that you own it, and that one should be very conscious about how it's being spent. Uh, I was motivated writing this book by the work of William James, the, the uh, philosopher. And he uh, pointed out something very straightforward, which is, you know, at the end of your days, your life will have been what you paid attention to. And so deciding how that vital resource is spent, in my view, is the key to, to life, frankly, the key to it meaning, the key to doing and having a life which you think is meaningful. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Stakes, explaining the birth of behavior modification. You Are Not So Smart explained that online algorithms aren't just designed to predict our behavior, but to shape it to more closely match their predictions. Wired Magazine spoke with two of my favorite thinkers, Yuval Noah Harari and Tristan Harris, about why humans are inherently hackable. You Are Not So Smart then compared going on the modern internet as akin to a bad acid trip. The Stakes spoke with the professor who tried to sound the alarm on the merging of computers and behavior modification. You Are Not So Smart discussed some of the small steps we can take in our own lives to reconnect with humanity, and finally Hidden Brain examined the importance of the vital resource that is our attention, and why it must be protected in order to live a meaningful life. Members will be hearing about Uh, Some interesting films and series that I've been giving my attention to recently that have been giving me some new and interesting insights to hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. (laughs) 
Hey Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling you live from caucusing in, well, I'm not really caucusing, but I was watching the caucuses for, for Iowa on C-SPAN flipping between a really small rural community center and a school that was much bigger and broader. And so, so I, I may have some of my numbers or details here wrong, but in the smaller state, the smaller, um, community center, I was fascinated to see they broke up into five groups, um, for their caucus and they could only do four for their delegates. So the smallest group was Warren, which had nine people in it. And so they had to disperse and, and resettle. And I think it was two, it could have been three. I could have my numbers wrong, but I think it was two people went to Bernie and I was just fascinated to watch that. And some people after their first round just went home. Like I'm not picking a second choice. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of a live action ranked choice voting, <laughs> but it was fascinating to watch. Um, and it was boring, but fascinating and, and tedious, <laughs> but it was amazing. And, and I was just sitting there very surprised to see from nine people with Warren, only two or three of them jumping over to Bernie, a couple of people going home and a couple of people going elsewhere. And obviously it's a, you know, everything's a little different from depending upon where you live and where you're sitting, but it, it was just fascinating. So anyway, that that's my feedback. Um, you can go to YouTube and watch it if you've got an hour to kill, but it was it was just fascinating to watch it unfold. Thanks. Stay awesome. Hi, Jay. It's Chris in San Diego. I bet you're getting a lot of comments on episode 1333 about how you lost your anger and i'm going to comment on that too i let me tell you a little bit about myself i'm 70 years old i had a stroke when i was 34 years old and so that was like half my life ago and ever since then i've had a balance disorder that and severe disability that kept me changed to a wheelchair or or crutches or sometimes a cane if it's really flat like a concrete driveway or something like that but anyway there's there's lots of attendant disabilities involved in that too ataxia which means that you can't really control your actions all that well you got a tremor and uh, kind of semi-paralyzed on one side um and a lack of proprioception, where if I'm not actually looking at my hand, I don't see where it is in space. So I, I can't perceive where it is in space, in other words. Anyway, all this having to do with anger, I, I find that as I grow older, I'm just not willing to spend the energy to be angry anymore about this particular thing. I was, I was always... I always wanted to be angry about this stuff that I had to overcome daily, hourly, every minute. And you know the old saying, like in the gym, you you say, lifting up one more weight, you, you got to get angry at it. And, and then that gives you the strength to push that one last weight. So I've, I've done a lot of that in my life. And 
So I'm, I'm really acutely aware of the positive uses of anger. And um, I'm very glad and proud that you will, you will explain your journey through your loss of anger. And, and I think with me, it has, I've done the same. I, I, I know psychologically and, and uh, psychiatrically what you're talking about when you explain your loss of anger. But I think with me, it has more to do with my energy level and just not willing to spend the energy on that anymore. And in, in terms of national politics, I don't think people should not be angry about what's going on. I think that would that lends a lot of energy to the right direction. So thanks again for your show. I just really love it and look forward to it. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, as promised, I have a little story about the production of today's episode. But first, a quick response to Chris, who we just heard from discussing anger. One little addendum to my episode about anger is that it's not entirely gone. You know, the whole point of the story was that I I felt my anger sort of melting away over the past couple of years. And to be more specific about that, I would say that I'm really just talking about my anger directed at individual people. And it's only sort of a specific group of people. So I still have plenty of what I think can accurately be called anger, if not at least just frustration or passion or something directed at injustice in general. I'm very much angered or frustrated or what have you about injustice. And so the way I think of it is that I my anger is now targeted at the problem as a concept rather than at the people who maybe are actually at the heart of the problem. They are causing it. They are perpetuating it. But my anger is at the problem rather than the people, because I think that gives a little bit of space to step back and understand why people are doing what they're doing, which might make it easier to be more effective at counteracting the effects of those people, or if it's a possibility convincing those people to change their position. So I don't know, that may sound like a fine line, but I I think that makes sense. And then also, there's another group of people who I have plenty of anger for, which is liars. That's people who know what they're doing. They know the harm they're causing, but they're willing to perpetuate it anyway, usually for selfish benefit. It can be a little you know, wishy-washy, like a politician pretends to not believe in climate change because their constituency refuses to believe in climate change. So they're lying. That politician is lying and helping to destroy the environment on which we all depend. So that's pretty frustrating. But on the other hand, 
it's also structural. Their their refusal to admit truth is structural because they really would lose their election, and it, you know they can convince themselves that someone even crazier would get elected in my place. So. I'm going to try to balance this line. And, you know, and then there are the ones who just say, well, I'm, I know the problem. I'm going to continue to perpetuate it and get rich from it. So there's still plenty of anger to go around at those who deserve it. It's the ones who are really unknowing about their actions that, that, you know, my anger has just faded away um, and is no longer directed at those people. Okay. Now, as promised, quick little story about today's episode. The background is after that anger episode, it, the, the production on that went long. I was working deep into the weekend, and the next episode I have coming up is a, it's a bit of a heavy lift. I have a lot of research to do on it, and so I decided, look, okay, I, I, I put in extra work on that anger episode. I need to take a break. I got to take an episode off, and then that'll give me the time I need to do the research for the episode for the end of this week. The problem is I had an ad scheduled for today's episode. So I got in touch with the ad broker and said, hey, you know, here's the situation. My production schedule screwed up. Would it be okay to shift that ad to another date? And the message I got back was, well, the advertiser would really prefer it to stay where it is. Would that be possible? So what I knew for sure was that I, I didn't have time to get that heavy lift research episode done in time. But I'm not in the financial position to tell an advertiser to piss off. I, you know, I talked a lot at the end of last year about how we were about to see a, a big hit in our advertising revenue because we weren't willing to make the change to spying on listeners and gathering your data to then inject customized targeted ads at you because we think that's super creepy. So a bunch of people signed up on Patreon to support us across that fiscal cliff coming up, uh, you know, at at the new year. But we really didn't hit our goal, and our advertising revenue isn't down to zero. We're at about like ten percent of what it was previously, and so I, I'm just not in a financial position to tell any advertiser, "Hey, sorry, like I got to take the day off. Keep your money." So. Here I am in a neoliberally constructed cage being forced to work in a way and at a time that I just didn't want to, didn't plan to, uh, and, and wasn't able to take a break when I really needed one. Now, simultaneously, there's, a, there's another storyline going on. Amanda has started taking writing classes. Just, you know, to, to some extracurricular activity gets her creative side flowing. She's been really enjoying it. And this week was her professor's birthday. And so the class was just invited to go out to the bar. And Amanda said, hey, you know, you could, to you could definitely come and hang out if you wanted to be social and meet some interesting people. And I thought, great, I, I would be happy to get out of the house. I will do that. So then I sit down to do the... Uh, prep work for today's show. I, you know, because I can't do the heavy lift research episode, I've had to dig and find something that was easier to complete. Uh, you know, a, an episode where I had already done a fair amount of the research because I had previously touched on tech dystopia type topics. I had already had 
all these clips found and I just needed to go through, sort them, and uh, you know, come up with a new topic from, from within that collection. And so I just needed to do enough prep work for today's show that would make production day bearable and get that all done in time to go to the bar. And then I thought, well, oh, let, let me just watch like one YouTube video. I don't know why. But of course, I didn't just watch one YouTube video. I watched a video about the Irish Civil War and then a video discussing story structure of a TV show I like. And then I watched a Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon comedy video. And then I watched a Majority Report video about making fun of a libertarian YouTuber. And so after, I don't know how long, 45 minutes or something went by, and I, I woke up from this waking dream state and got back to work researching internet-based behavior modification and thought, damn it, <laughs> if, if I can't even get myself out of this, then what chance does anyone else have? So, of course, I ran out of time. I still had work to do. I didn't have time to go to the bar. So, ultimately, I failed to be social on a day that I wanted to be social because of the combined forces of the financial pressures of neoliberalism and the algorithmically driven behavior modification of YouTube. So, sure, I agree that it's it's great to be personally aware of these dynamics and try to fight against them as best we can, but clearly we need some structural change here. If you have thoughts on that or anything else, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those especially who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. You are the ones making me not entirely dependent on advertising revenue, which gives me at least some additional flexibility. Uh, I, I could use plenty more if you'd like to sign up. So that is not only how the program survives, but uh, you know manages to maintain some degree of independence. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to wrap up with some transatlantic news of the week by Limerick from at Limerick underscore news. The Brexiters got their solution and left the EU institution. In a similar way, the Senate said nay and abandoned the whole constitution. Mm-hmm.